I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. In this program, we're talking about the recently published new edition of a book that first came out over 20 years ago, Nicholas Cook's Music, a very short introduction. And full disclosure, I was a commissioning editor of that first edition. Some new editions are fairly rudimentary affairs. A few updates here and there, a quiet deletion or two, some recent titles added to the bibliography, a new preface on the front. Not so Nicholas Cook's book. It's more even than a thorough rewrite. It's like a completely new book, built on the chassis of the old one. Or to use a metaphor that Nick prefers, it shares some of the same genetic material. Not that Nick has repudiated his earlier view of music. This, from the foreword to the original edition, gives a good idea of where he's coming from. Every music is different, but every music is music, too. There's a level at which you can talk of music, and I can write this very short introduction, but it isn't the ABC level. To talk about music in general is to talk about what music means, and more basically, how it is, how it can be, that music operates as an agent of meaning. For music isn't just something nice to listen to, On the contrary, it's deeply embedded in human culture. Just as there isn't a culture that doesn't have language, so there isn't one that doesn't have music. Music somehow seems to be natural, to exist as something apart, and yet it is suffused with human values, with our sense of what is good or bad, right or wrong. Music doesn't just happen, it is what we make it, and what we make of it. People think through music, decide who they are through it, express themselves through it. The original edition made a splash. Most music students in the past two decades have been recommended to read it. An academic journal in 2001 devoted a whole issue to digesting its implications. Translations have appeared in a host of languages. And in the past two decades, Rather than Nick's view of what music is and does undergoing a profound shift, it's the world of music itself which has experienced massive change. When the first edition came out, MP3 players were only just beginning to come on the market. The first iPod 
was a few years in the future, the first iPhone around a decade away. Streaming services, the idea of vast music libraries that you could access almost anywhere for a monthly subscription, likewise, all still in the improvisable future. Back then, I was still delighted to have a portable CD player, which was pretty good as long as you didn't jolt it when it was playing. The technology changes our relationship with music, how we, and I'm not keen on the word, curate the music we listen to. It changes the range of different musics we can have a relationship with, from all parts of the world, all periods of history. It changes the musician's relationship with their audience. It changes the economics. You begin to see why Nick's new edition is a root and branch rewrite. We explore these issues in the interview, but I wanted to begin with Nick's own beginnings in music, back when he was a boy learning the oboe. I didn't really come from a musical family. I came from a family of historians. Um, all my relatives were historians of one thing or another. But when I went to school, I was picked to be in the choir, which I wasn't actually very happy about, and it meant I had to go into school on Sundays, which I took a very dim view of. But it did give me a definite musical foundation that probably I have relied on since then. I think I was 14 when I started playing the oboe, but frankly I never played it terribly well or terribly seriously. And uh, when I went off to university, I did history and art history. I didn't do music in the first place. And that meant that I always felt myself a bit of an outsider compared to my colleagues who would have been, you know, star cellist. And the point came that they had to make that decision. Do they continue as an aspiring professional cellist or do they sell their cello and become an academic? And as they were my colleagues, they obviously decided to become an academic. But I never had such at such a moment. I was never nearly good enough to do that. After I finished my degree in history and art history, and then I spent three years doing this and that and wondering what on earth I wanted to do. And at that point, I went back and did an undergraduate music degree. But it does mean I've always seen myself as an, in, as, as an outsider. I think a lot of people in the trade think of me as a you know, classic insider. I mean, I ended up as professor at Cambridge. But I don't see it that way. I, I see myself as an outsider who approaches music in terms that are more sociological or psychological or broadly cultural or whatever. So I always saw myself as a bit of an outsider, and in some ways I think that was a source of strength. I had picked up on that fact that you'd studied art, history and regular history before you came to, to musicology, and I wondered if that had given you, maybe if not a wider perspective, then at least a different, a different sort of cultural framework maybe in which you approached music compared to those colleagues as you say who who perhaps started out with performance being their you know that the practitioner side being their their sort of first interest and then maybe they gravitated towards some aspect of of musicology or, or, or music history or aesthetics or something but you came with with a, a different as I say maybe framework from them. I think it ended up like that but it, I'm not sure that it really started like that. I mean, when I decided to go and do music, I had ideas of becoming a composer, which I quickly gave up, one, because I saw it wasn't the sort of life I wanted, and number two, because I wasn't nearly good enough at that either. So I ended up uh, specialising in music theory, music analysis, the knots and bolts, you know, taking music apart like a clock to see what makes it tick. 
And in a way, that is the branch of music studies that is furthest from, you know, cultural issues and social issues and so on and so forth. But then quite rapidly after I finished my PhD, I feel that my previous interest in history and art history sort of came flooding back and um, enriched what I did. So I think, yeah, I did end up with a kind of perspective of music and a broad framework and adopting quite different approaches towards it. And I think it certainly did have to do with the fact that I'd gone round in circles before I ended up in, in music. But it took time to happen. But you had, I'm sensing, a sort of feeling that there were questions which ought to be asked of music that perhaps weren't being asked often or broadly or, or penetratingly enough. That was a sort of motivation. My doctoral thesis was all about why the way that people talk about and analyse music seems to have nothing to do with uh, how even I experience music, let alone how my wife, who doesn't particularly know anything about music, but she loves music. Sometimes I think she likes it better than I do. But, uh, you know, those explanations absolutely do not apply to her. So it seemed to me they intellectualized something in the wrong way, in a kind of elitist and unrealistic kind of way. I wanted to attack the elitism and I wanted to attack the lack of realism too. So that focused me very much on music as individual experience and music as social experience. So yeah, it was music as experience rather than music as talked about by musicologists. Now we're going to come on shortly to talk about the new edition of the Very Short Introduction to Music and what has changed in the book and what has changed in the world of music. But before we get to that, could I ask you another personal question, which is, you wrote that book more than 20 years ago now. Looking back on it, what sort of place does that book occupy in your career in the sort of progression of your thinking about music? Because I know it's been very successful and it's been translated into nearly 20 languages. So I guess it's prob probably the book that you're best known for to a wide readership. So how, before you sort of embarked on the new edition, how did you sort of see that in the sequence of, of things that you've published and, and you're thinking about music more broadly? Yeah, I mean, when I wrote it, I, I, I wrote it very quickly because I was Dean of Arts at Southampton University at the time, and that meant I was basically a full-time academic administrator. So I had to draw on what I knew, what I'd thought about, what I'd written about, and so on and so forth. And one of my worries about the book is that some reviewer would say, this isn't a very short introduction to music, it's a very short introduction to Nicholas Cook, but nobody ever did say that. And in some ways, the, the new book does the same. You know, it reflects the things that, that I'm interested in. And I think that that's good, rather than saying, I have to cover all of these things to give it a bit of personal spin. You can't talk about a subject like music with a capital M in 40,000 words and approach it except personally, I think. Yeah, the, the book, I think the book was influential. I mean, uh, an awful lot of... Uh, Students, you know, it was the first thing they were given to, 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 to read. And in a way, the fact that it was successful, but on the basis of 20 years ago, presented me with a real problem with the new one, because it seemed to me, in a way, I was sort of being set up to fail, you know, because I couldn't really recreate the same effect that the original book had had, had because 
partly because of my book, but also because of many other things, you know, the whole discipline had moved on and in largely in that sort of direction. So I could never really recreate it. And therefore, what did I do? Did I sort of tinker with it and, uh, you know, take out the references to things that dated it completely, like the Spice Girls or... And in fact, I, uh, Oxford, I mean, Oxford had been needling me for some time to do a second edition. I couldn't see that uh, they weren't right. And so I did a formal proposal that had about a third of it been kept more or less as it is, but edited. A third of it sort of rewritten, but retaining some of the same stuff, and a third of it thrown away and totally replaced from scratch. So all that went through this index or whatever, and I sat down to do it. And after about half an hour, I realised this was completely impossible, completely wrong-headed. What I had to do was simply throw it away and start again. And that's essentially what I did. I mean, I did spend time going through the old book and thinking, well, I could, you know, do this, use that if I put this here. But in fact, the more I did that, the more I thought, this is simply the wrong way to do it. If I'm going to do it at all... Uh, And I did think to myself, well, I mean, actually, is it not time for somebody else to do this book? But when it came down to it, I also thought, but I'm not willing to give away this opportunity, you know, that I have. So I really did start over again. I hardly looked at the old book because if it was relevant, it was in my head. And if it wasn't in my head, it wasn't relevant. And started afresh on that basis. I mean, there are... The the book shares genes with the first edition. I mean, it's trying to do the same sort of job in an updated world. For example, some of the same examples I use, even though they're now quite old, the general concerns are the same. So definitely it, it has common genes. But I guarantee you that there was no cut and paste. There are a couple of paragraphs, maybe a little bit more than that, that are, you know, resemble quite closely the original paragraphs. For all I know, there could be one that's identical. But I doubt it because I never, ever, as I say, cut and paste. Even the paragraphs that are most like the original, I re-keyed from scratch, you know, so they, they're guaranteed new and wholesome and not simply <laughs> taken over as a matter of, as a matter of course. We've been talking about, you know, the, the first edition and moving to the second edition, but I guess some people may be listening to this or coming to the book for the very first time and know nothing about it. It's history. And if they see that Oxford has published a very short introduction to music, they may be expecting it to be a history of Western music or a history of classical music or a book that looks at the analysis of music or the science of music or acoustics. It's none of those things. I mean, it has elements of some of those things within it, but that's really not where you're coming from. I mean, what would you say the impetus that sort of motivates the book for you is? Okay, in the first edition, I I said I want to lay out a map on which uh, all sorts of different musics can be placed. Now, that seems far too overambitious and a bit sort of, you know, colonialist-minded to me now. And instead, I'd rephrase it that the book... Insofar as it centres on a particular tradition, it centres on the classical tradition. And one reason for that is that now, unlike when I wrote the original edition, now there are a number of other very short introductions into film music, into folk music, uh, into uh, world music, and so on and so forth. But 
although I wanted to provide some orientation to, you know, the written traditions of music, to the classical tradition, I wanted firstly to set it into the context of other musics and their place in the contemporary world. So it's classical music in relation to all sorts of other musics. But also I wanted to talk about classical music, talking about fundamental things of how you imagine music, of what it's like to perform, of the issues of real time and performance, of the relationship between how you think about music as a way out of time, for example, if you're a composer, uh, and how you experience it. Now those are things that apply not just to Western music, but to many different musics. So my idea was to, as it were, orientate Western readers or non-Western readers, for example, in the Far East, where classical music is arguably, Western classical music is arguably more vital than it is uh, in, in, in Europe. I wanted to orientate people towards that tr tradition where it's coming from and the extent to which things that developed over the last couple of hundred years in the classical tradition, in opera or whatever, how they've morphed and changed, but they still affect popular music. I, I talk about Beyoncé, for example, at some length, trying to show how the, the, the modern celebrity culture actually draws on elements that developed through the 19th century or whatever. But at the same time, I also wanted to provide ways of thinking about fundamental issues of music that would apply across different traditions. And there is, you know, there's, there, there's quite a bit about uh, different sorts of popular music. There's quite a bit about different forms of non-Western music, because I've done quite a lot of work on that since then. So, okay, no longer spread out a map and, you know, locate everything, like some uh, armchair comparative musicologist, but instead focus on the Western tradition, but in relation to other traditions and addressing issues about what does it mean for the world to be now made up of all sorts of different um, traditions jostling in with each other and competing. Unlike the days when, in Europe, music meant Bach, Beethoven, Brahms. And I thought, you know, recognising all the things you said about the, the variety of musics that the book talks about, I thought that that statue of Beethoven in a Viennese park that you reproduce as one of the illustrations in the book, was foundational to the whole set of ideas that you're trying to, to grapple with because it's a, a statue of Beethoven looking down on us. He's a sort of brooding, solitary genius. You know, he's manifesting something which really taps into a whole set of values, which, as you say, although you know, in recent decades we've sort of moved beyond those or questioned those and or problematized those in lots of different ways, they're still really a sort of a point of reference, aren't they? They, sh they shape a lot of the story, this powerful elitist attitude towards what Western classical music embodies and where it sits in a hierarchy of other musics or where it sat until comparatively recently. Can you talk a little bit about that, that statue and whether, whether you think I'm right in placing it quite centrally in your whole, your whole scheme? Yeah, I mean, uh, that statue to me epitomises, as you say, the genius or the great man, which is maybe even a more telling kind of phrase. And I think one of classical music's problems in the modern world, which it generates for itself, is its association with uh, not only traditions of uh, maleness, of uh, exceptionalism, of a sort of 
overdone seriousness. I feel that in separating itself off from entertainment, classical music, in, in aspiring to greatness, classical music has alienated an awful lot of its potential listeners, because actually the music is great. But the whole bunch of attitudes that go together with it, uh, for example, concert etiquette and so on and so forth, and one might say the same about the teaching of music at conservatories, I, th I think it's not a very nice world. And I think that classical music could do itself a lot of good by, by freeing up. Now, it, it sounds a little bit late in the day for me to be saying this because people have been saying this for ages. I mean, when I wrote the first edition, it's a sort of angrier book in that it said our responses to music and the reality of music in today's world are being betrayed by obsolete ways of thinking about it. Now, something has happened on that front, but it's a little, little bit like gender equality where, you know, constantly there is progress, but somehow things seem to rather remain the, the same. And I sort of feel that a bit with classical musical culture, despite all sorts of things having happened in that time. Quite a lot of the old establishment is, is, is still there. And I think that creates a problem for classical music and classical musicians. You quote Sir Harrison Birtwistle, who is a composer I, you know, I greatly admire, but you quote him in the book, and I think I remember it from the first edition, although I may be wrong. He'd had a, a commission performed at the proms, I think, in the mid-90s, and it, had, it was called Panic, and it had sort of induced panic among, among certain listeners. And he'd reposted by saying, I'm not running a restaurant. Now, that embodies a certain sort of set of values and assumptions about classical music. Do you think you know, in the light of what you've just said, that that kind of attitude is is less audible these days, that that is something that's probably changed in the 25 years. You would be less likely to hear a composer saying that after a premiere that had been criticised than, than we did in the mid-1990s, or, or is, that just, is that just one of those sort of fluctuating things? No, I do think that. Uh, I, I think that younger composers... Partly influenced by, by film music, by media music, by these styles of music which draw on all sorts of different kinds of musical traditions and elements. Uh, and after all, many do write music like that, um, you know, in order to live, even if they're uh, serious composers, <laughs> with scare quotes around the serious. I, I think there is a more open-minded, moralistic kind of attitude. And this is one, one of the reasons I said it, it, it seems a bit late to be saying this, because among composers, certainly the mentality has, has, has changed a lot, and it is much more uh, open-minded, I, I, I would say. Uh, it's just that it doesn't quite seem to have hit the concert halls where people perform Beethoven symphonies or Brahms clarinet quintets or whatever it might be. When you wrote the first edition, the iPod was still several years in the future. The iPhone was further in the future than that. The things like, you know, Napster, Pirate Bay, Spotify, Facebook, you know, all sorts of online and hardware phenomena. I guess I was trying to think, I mean, would you say that that digital domain is the biggest change that music has undergone since you, you wrote the first edition? Is that what's really made this new edition so different from the previous one? Has that, it's not a, just a difference of degree, it's actually a difference of kind in the way that human beings relate to music. 
Yeah, I, I would say it has basically changed everything. Um, it's had a massive uh, influence on how music is produced. I don't just mean in the sense of uh, recordings, but how it's produced, how it's created quite generally. That's changed enormously. It's changed enormously the dissemination of music. It's enormously changed the music business. And perhaps most of all, it's enormously changed how people use music and make it part of their everyday lives. In the book, I came up with a category that I called lifestyle music or music for lifestyle. Now, that's not a term that people are generally using, but as I, there's a central chapter that is historical to the sense that it talks about developments in concert music over the last uh, couple of centuries that have fed in different ways into contemporary music of different kinds, including contemporary popular music. I mean, I'm interested to know whether you think lifestyle is, I mean, does it have a pejorative tinge? When I talk about music as lifestyle, what I mean is music that is drawn into people's everyday experience, music that becomes part of where they are, music that becomes part of who they are, music that is used um, not only for purposes of relaxation, and after all, people are doing that ever since uh, recording began, but music that becomes part of the fabric of everyday life. And dissemination of music through the web, most obviously through streaming, um, but through incorporation in all sorts of uh, digital multimedia, has made it part of the warp and weft of life in a way that it didn't used to be. Now, if people want to say that's uh, you know, a betrayal of the tradition of great music with its aesthetic distance, etc., 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 I'm going to say, but this isn't a zero-sum game. You know, we don't give up Beethoven symphonies just because we have digital listening rooms and so on and so forth. There are more possibilities, and if music which used to be more integrated in everyday life in the days when you know, there wasn't a television, people would play probably very badly in their own homes and so on and so forth. Um, these traditions of participation largely disappeared with the rise of the mass media. Digital technology has recreated new forms of musical and audio-video participation or music that you bring with you, music that you wear, music that in effect becomes part of you, that doesn't mean you can't go and have the completely different experience of listening to uh, Beethoven or Gagaku or whatever it might be. So it's a question of all sorts of different options. And that's what I tried to capture with the idea of lifestyle music as a, 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 as a way that music is now used and is made meaningful to people that's, you know, really quite different from how it used to happen. But of course, what used to happen goes on happening too. So it's a constant building up of alternative choices of living with music. And I was thinking, has it increased our passive consumption at the expense of the production of music, and I'm not sure about that because, you know, with an iPad, you can do, you can create all sorts of amazing sounds and use sampling, and you know, digital instruments are opening up lots of creative possibilities for lots of people 
who maybe couldn't have afforded to take cello lessons. So it's quite easy to sort of see this as a process of commodification and, and passive consumption, but perhaps the, the story is more complicated than that. I think the story is much more complicated than that. I mean, ever since uh, Remix and stuff like that, participatory practices enabled by digital technology have become much more prominent in how people use and live with music. So you can equally well produce an argument that although participatory music in the sense of kids going and playing in school orchestras may have declined, I don't know whether it has, but if it has, owing to what has been happening with music education, it's increasingly become a uh, preserve of the affluent and so there may be a social movement there. But if you look at people's participation in music overall, I think the case that music has become passive is is quite unsustainable. I think you could easily argue exactly the opposite. But to do that, you must look across the entire range of music, not just focus on, say, the classical tradition to the exclusion of others. So if we're saying we've we've seen a sort of gradual dethronement of classical music as a sort of as universally held up as the um you know the pinnacle of, of musical creation are we living in a in a great age of cross fertilization and I, I mean I was conscious of what you said in the book that sometimes we can western culture can appropriate or misappropriate the language or the styles or the the idioms of of non-western musics and it can become a sort of form of colonialism or it can become a sort of tawdry form of orientalism so i guess cross fertilization is potentially a very good and a very fertile thing but it it can also you know the, the, again it's also it's also got a potential downside isn't it depends who is using what and in, in what way and for what purpose yes certainly you can see how in the 19th century music was used, if you like, as an instrument of colonialism to naturalise colonial rule, to make it seem as if that is the way the world is, to also convey the sense that um, the West, the colonial powers, represent a higher level of civilization. Music as a way of modernising traditional musics was a way of you know, creating that sense. So it certainly was an instrument of empire, although it was always capable of being used to create uh, contact zones between the colonists and the colonised and, and facilitate interaction that mightn't otherwise have happened. So it always worked both ways. Then, interestingly enough, the same processes of modernization or westernization of traditional musics happened all over again in the context of decolonization. You have a very similar history in some ways, and yet it's a history of something completely different because this is ex-colonial nation-states seeking their own identity, but also seeking their own identity as modern states, as part of the modern world, while retaining elements of their own culture. And music proved to be a very flexible medium for doing precisely that. So certainly music has been part of colonialism, part of Western appropriation. Music also serves political purposes. There's a great deal that could be written about music and the alt-right, for example. So yeah, music has potential to work positively on people and on society. It also has potential 
to work in pernicious ways, and there are plenty examples of both. And what it boils down to, of course, is that music in itself isn't inherently good or bad, but it is a powerful tool that can be used for good or bad. And the reason that it's so powerful is that music naturalizes what it's saying ideologically. Uh, music, as it were, covers up its own past. Music creates instant traditions. Music can also persuade us in uh, television adverts. It does all of these things, but it does them subliminally. And it's that subliminal quality of music that gives it a particular strength to be used or abused for political or ideological purposes. Yes. I mean, as you, as you say near the beginning of the book, it's artificial, but it presents itself as natural. It sort of wants to be seen as natural, and that, that gives it its potency, doesn't it? Something that's human-made, but seems almost to be a sort of natural upwelling of um, the human spirit or whatever, um, that, that gives it potency. Now, you say, Nick, in your very last paragraph, that music has greatest potential for meaning when we experience it with other people. And so I guess it's an obvious question to, to ask you, but what do you think COVID might do to the, the musical landscape? Uh, there's clearly a lot of pent-up you know, desire to make music that's being held in check at the moment. I guess it's difficult to look ahead and, and, and imagine in what state music will emerge from, from the COVID crisis. Yeah, um, the book is pre-COVID, narrowly pre-COVID. Except that uh, when it was going through the press, I think last October, I thought I can't not mention it. And so what I basically said is right now, at the height of the crisis, it's completely impossible to know what's going to come out of this, how far things are going to go back to being the same. I mean, many people have a, a, a real urge to be part of live music, whether as a performer, whether as a listener or whatever. And so I can't think that people won't want live music again and will entirely rely on Spotify or telemusicking where people connected by computers in different parts of the world work together uh, to create music. I'm quite sure there's going to be enormous urge to make concerts like they used to be, but the question is how much of the infrastructure will still be there. Most musicians are self-employed in one way or another. Most musicians, I think, haven't done well out of the various governmental furlough schemes and so on and so forth. So quite what sort of devastation there may be as we come out of the pandemic, I think that's a, that's a real big worry and a real big concern, especially because the way that the recording business has, has been set up now with Spotify and streaming and so on and so forth, musicians do very badly out of that, except a small number who do very well out of it. So that's not really a basis for sustainable music. It's live music that most musicians are able to work professionally on the basis of. COVID has also shown us some things about how music can be used and what lacks music can be made up for. So once COVID started, you, you started to have uh, album listening sessions where people 
would all play the same recording at the same time. I mean, having you know got together via a web group, Twitter group, whatever it might be. And they would exchange comments in real time through Twitter or whatever it might be. And so they would talk in real time while the music played. So that was creating a kind of virtual community of togetherness facilitated by the music. And then you had the Italian balcony music when the virus got to Italy really before it got anywhere else in Europe. And people would go out onto their balconies and uh, they would sing or they would play or whatever. And in doing that, they created the sense that there were people around. They might be alone on their balcony or there might be a couple of people on the balcony or whatever it might be. They were shut down, they were locked down, so they weren't seeing people in everyday life. But through music, space could be eliminated and there was a feeling of togetherness, of uh, even potential intimacy. And then, of course, there was the famous case of Romeo and Juliet. So there was this guy and this woman, and they were on opposite balconies, and uh, they they fell in love, and uh, last time I heard about them, they they were engaged to be married. So, you know, what better uh, demonstration of music's uh, ability to foster intimacy, even at a distance, could you have than that? And it made quite an interesting reflection, which is, I mean, what are, what are people missing in COVID? They're missing touch. They can't touch one another. But music seems to somehow create that intimacy across a distance. It's a kind of remote intimacy, if you like, which makes one think, well, maybe it'd be helpful to think of music as a form of sonic touching, and I think that's an interesting thought. So I think COVID, and there are a lot of people organising, you know, research projects to do with music and COVID. So in a way, in terms of the discipline of musicology or music studies, I think quite a lot is going to be learnt from COVID. <laughs> Nick, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you today, I wanted to go back to an answer you gave earlier when you said your wife, who isn't a professional musicologist, you think that she may actually enjoy music more than you. I guess... A lot of the things the book is doing is sort of maybe problematizing our relationship with music or making making apparent things which are are less obvious, which are hidden. And I wondered, do you think it's inevitable when you engage with that kind of idea, you know, either by writing the book or by reading the book, that the pleasure might then become qualified? Or do you see them as two very separate things that you can sit down and listen to a piece of music and not have some of the things that you've been talking about in your head, but nonetheless, that is part of your sort of intellectual furniture. I just wonder. I just wonder how you see the relationship between that sort of pleasure that people get from music and becoming aware of some of these, you know, po- political, cultural issues that the book touches on. I'm certainly capable of just listening to a piece of music and getting into it in the way I think that anybody else does. Now, it may, in fact, it's quite likely to. Uh, stimulate all sorts of trains of thought and that will make it a less immersive experience for me because my mind is going after the thing, which is nice too. So I wouldn't really say that what I know about music necessarily improves or detracts from my experience, but what it does mean is that music isn't a very good form of relaxation for me. Which it is for many people. I mean, whereas if you're reading a book 
or perhaps even I don't know maybe looking at art is is different but reading a book you're engaging in words and and I guess your analytical brain is quite engaged with music that that that's on a sliding scale isn't it 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 is possible as you say to to just sort of surrender and, and immerse yourself in the music or is possible to be thinking either analytically about the content or about wider historical political cultural resonances but for you but for you music is not is not pure relaxation that is that is something you i guess have sacrificed yeah i, I think i would say that that uh, in a sense i'm never off duty with music I was talking to Nicholas Cook about the new edition of his book, Music, A Very Short Introduction, which is available now from Oxford University Press. More information on their website. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 70 more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on any interviews you've missed. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.